Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6 of the Principles of Economics online course. Today's lecture's topic is capital. This is probably the lecture in which this course starts to get really serious. This is when we get into the meat of the course. In the first three chapters, we introduced the basic building blocks and the methodology that we're going to be using in this course. In the fourth chapter, we introduced the concept of labor. In the fifth chapter, we introduced the concept of property. Now, chapter six, we introduced the concept of capital, which is enormously important. Capital is a topic that is not discussed as often as it should be, in my opinion, in most economics textbooks. 
it's generally not emphasized a lot and i think we're going to see in this chapter why that is the case i think there are good reasons why most mainstream economists won't like to emphasize capital because an emphasis on capital flies in the face of most of the teachings of most mainstream economics so what is capital well in the previous chapter we discussed property Capital is a form of property. It's a form of property that people use to produce consumption goods. So it's the form of property that you don't acquire for its own sake, but you acquire for the sake of producing other kinds of property. It's something whose value does not come from its own uh, utility that it provides you, but from the utility that you get from the things that it produces. So what makes a capital good, a capital good, is not so much that uh, any kind of inherent property that it has. The same good could be a capital good or it could be a consumption good. What makes it a capital good is that it is used for production rather than consumed for its own sake. So if you use your computer for watching movies and playing games, that's a consumer good. But if you use the computer to work, then that's a capital good. Same is true for a car. If you use a car to drive people around and make money, that's a capital good. If you use the car for entertainment, then that's a consumption good. So a few important concepts about capital that we need to cover in this chapter. The first one is to understand that capital is the lengthening of the structure of production. What you do when you engage in capitalist production, in capital um, and production that involves capital is that you make the structure of production longer. You engage in longer production processes. This might sound counterintuitive. Capital seems like it's something that people want to do. So why would people want to spend more time on production? Remember in chapter three, we explained how all of economics is about economizing time. So if you want to economize time, why would you want a structure? Why would you want to engage in a process of production that takes longer? And the answer to that is that it is more productive. And by engaging in capitalist production, yes, you make the structure of production longer, the process of production takes more time, but the output is higher at the end of it. And so let's think of an example. A car makes a trip quicker than walking. So when you think of a capital being involved in the performance of a trip, you think a car is a much faster way of crossing a kilometer than walking. It takes you maybe an hour to walk a kilometer, or well, less than an hour, but it takes you a minute to drive a kilometer in a car. So it's much faster than walking. So why then is the production with capital longer? Because the production with capital is not just about driving the car the distance that you could have walked. It's also It also involves the production of the car. And so when you involve capital goods, the structure of production of that one trip is longer because it involves producing the car that you need to take on that trip. So why do we engage in these longer processes? Why do we build a fishing rod when we can just catch fish with our hands? Because the fishing rod is more productive. Yes, it takes more time to make the fishing rod, but making the fishing rod allows us to fish faster. So 
Let's think about how this applies in the case of fish. If you're going to catch fish with your own hand, it'll take you two hours, let's say, to catch a fish. But if you're trying to catch fish with a spear, it'll take you four hours to get to the fish. But these four hours include building the spear. So building the spear takes you maybe three hours to find the right stick, to sharpen it, and to figure out how to use it properly, and then to go to the sea and catch the fish with it. It'll take you more time than if you just went with your hand. But with the time that is spent on on making the spear. Now, what that means is that the marginal time needed to catch another fish now becomes a lot shorter. It's You can catch another fish now much faster because you have a spear. Now, if you were to build a boat, it makes takes you a week to get the fish because you need a week to build the boat. But then once you have the boat, you can go deep into the sea and you can catch fish more effectively than if you are stuck at the shore. And after the first fish is caught, you are able to catch a lot more fish a lot faster with the boat. So there's a distinction here between the time for the entire production process and the time for the marginal fish that you catch. Capital makes the entire production process longer, but it makes the marginal time needed for the next fish shorter. Another important pivotal concept to understand about capital is saving. Saving is the mother of capital. Only by deferring consumption can capital goods exist. Without saving, there can be no capital. The fisherman cannot build a fishing rod without sacrificing leisure time or eating fewer fish. He needs to eat during the period of production, which requires that he save. He needs to save some fish from the previous day, maybe, or he needs to give up on eating some fish during the day today. He has to give up something in order to produce the capital. A farmer has to produce enough grain to feed himself during the period when the grains he plants mature into more grains. He has to reduce his consumption of grain, and he has to provide for himself while he is engaged in the process of production. This is true for a farmer with grains. It's true for a fisherman with fish. It's also true in the most sophisticated capitalist production systems that we have. It's true for the case of the Boeing 787. If you think about the process of producing a Boeing 787, I was looking this up. It took nine years from the day that Boeing announced that they were going to make the Dreamliner 787 until the day that the 787 earned its first ticket sale until the day it flew its first commercial flight. So for nine years, people were working on the Boeing 787 without the Boeing 87 generating a cent of revenue. So how did these people work on that airline airliner? Who financed them? That's where capital comes in. That's where the investment comes in. So in order to have engineers and workers and real estate and machines and electricity, and all kinds of different inputs into the production process that is the Boeing 787, working for nine years without generating any revenue, that requires a capitalist. You need a capitalist. You need somebody who has money to be able to feed those workers, to be able to pay for the electricity bills, to be able to pay for the rent for all of the places where these people are working in order to make their job possible so that 
they could then produce this Boeing 787. Someone had to save up the capital to pay for the workers and the materials. Someone had to give up on consumption in order to allow that production to happen. This is the key point. That person who was financing the Boeing 787, all the people who are financing, effectively, that's the investors in Boeing, all of those people could have sold their shares in Boeing and taken that money and consumed it used it for consumption they could have bought food with it and eaten it they could have moved into a bigger house they could have bought a nicer car they could have bought their own private jet some of them and yet they chose not to so that they could keep that money with boeing so that boeing could work on building this airliner so that after nine years of work that airline that airplane would start earning money as it's being sold to airlines that then use it to take people around and sell them tickets. So to lengthen the production process, someone somewhere must forego the consumption of resources in order to provide them to the producers. And this is true in the case of the fisherman who needs to forego the food that he would have caught if he was fishing with his hands in order to spend his time working on building a fishing rod or building a fishing boat. And it is true with the Boeing 787. Somebody has to give up consumption in order for production to happen without delaying gratification, without uh, without giving up consumption, production cannot happen. Capitalism cannot exist. Capital could not be brought into the process and of course why would they do that the only reason to do that is that it will offer them a better return and that is what capital does capital gives us higher productivity so you can think of capital as being labor nature and time stored to allow for higher productivity that's borrowing from mises Production with capital requires less marginal time per unit of output. Even though it makes the entire production process longer, it makes the marginal time required for each unit shorter. The more capital, the longer the production process, but the shorter the marginal production. So I have this figure, figure 8, that illustrates this. You see... These are the different ways in which you can go fishing. You can fish with your hands, in which case you'll catch somewhere between zero to three fish a day, let's say. You can fish with a rod. You'll get somewhere between 10 and 30 fish in a day. You can get a little boat, get 100 to 300 fish a day. And you can get a giant trawler like the Annalise Elena, which is the largest open sea trawler in the world. And that catches, that has 70 workers and between them, they catch something like 350 tons of fish every day. So that means that a worker on that fish, on, on that fishing trawler, gets about five tons of fish in a day, which is an astonishing amount of fish when you compare it to the worker catching fish with his hands. So what is the difference between the guy catching fish with his hands and the guy on the trawler? The difference is capital. It's the same worker. You could take the same exact person and tell him to try and go catch fish with his hands, or you can put him on the trawler, and the difference will be about five tons of fish in a single day, which is an astonishing amount of fish. So the same person can go from producing one fish in a day to five tons of fish simply by having capital. 
This is the main explanation for the disparity in living standards worldwide. This is why some people are rich and some people are poor. Rich people are able to work with capital. Therefore, they have very high productivity. Rich fishermen work with giant boats and so are able to produce a lot of fish. They feed themselves. They feed their family. They feed a lot more people. And they sell those fish and make a good revenue from selling the fish and therefore are able to spend that money on buying other things that they need. Poor fishermen have to make do with very primitive materials, very little amounts of capital, and so they can barely catch enough fish to survive. And they are very vulnerable to accidents or bad things happening. A few days of bad weather in which they can't catch fish for whatever reason, and they could starve. Um, Something bad happens that destroys their tiny little boat. They don't have savings because they don't have high productivity. They don't have a large amount of uh, resources available for them that they could survive on when their tiny little amounts of capital are destroyed. So if you want to really think about the importance of capital, try to imagine your life without capital. Try and imagine all of the things that you use for production that are increasing your productivity. Imagine what happens to your job if you don't do them. Imagine if you're a cab driver, what happens to your job if you can't have a car? Without a car, you have to carry people on your back. Imagine how that job would be. Imagine how productive it would be. Imagine how much you would be able to charge people to carry them on your back and move them around. Imagine how exhausting it would be. And that's true for any job whatsoever, everything. Think even if you're, say, a school teacher, uh, you might think, well, I just need a blackboard and uh, and a chalk not true. Now, blackboard and the chalk, and you need books, and also you need the internet and the computer and all the libraries that you have that allow you to access all the books that you need in order to learn all the things that you teach to your students and to figure out how to teach it best. Imagine if you didn't have access to those things. Imagine how much less your productive your job would be, how much less your students would learn. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. More than just increasing the productivity, however, capital also allows for goods that were not 
possible. So it's not just that having capital allows you to move people, uh, to move more people around as a cab driver. It also allows you to move people faster than you could on your back. Nobody can run as fast as a car. And so having a car allows us to completely revamp and revolutionize the a process of transportation having a giant fish trawler allows us to catch the sort of fish that we wouldn't be able to catch from the shore having capital changes the kind of goods that we can produce not it doesn't just increase the productivity and the longer the production process the more capital is deployed successfully the higher the productivity of labor the less of a day's labor needs to be dedicated to securing basic survival and the larger the margin of safety separating man from starvation that's i think a key point to keep in mind more capital doesn't just mean more productivity it means more of the more output that allows us a margin of safety between us and starvation between us and disaster without modern capital the output of a day's work would be in the rough range of what an individual needs to survive for a day making existence precarious and uncertain extreme poverty today exists only where capital is scarce and people need to work daily to survive many things are made cheap by owning capital and capitalistness as i like to call it is a prime reason why poverty can appear insurmountable the reason people can't escape poverty is that they can't accumulate capital because not having capital allows gives them low productivity and therefore having low productivity means that they cannot accumulate capital and they can barely produce as much as they consume and that living of precarious um, survival where you're uncertain about your survival because you don't have enough resources that's the dangerous thing about poverty and that's what makes poverty so difficult to break out of because without capital everything is expensive and everything is unproductive and the tricky part of breaking out of poverty is that you need to reduce your consumption at the time when your consumption is very low so you're already poor your consumption is already very low and it's very difficult for you to increase your consumption so most uh, economists generally, I would say, have an idea of capital, well, particularly leftist economists and Marxist economists, they have an idea of capital as being this evil thing that evil people are blessed with, and that it allows them to effectively exploit the rest of society. And they treat it as if it's just something that's given from heaven. Some people are born tall, some people are born good looking, and some people are born with capital, and other people just are born uh, without it. But it isn't. And, and, and this kind of mentality is what unfortunately keeps people stuck and um, unable to accumulate their capital because they don't understand how capital works they think capital is just a, a thing that some people have and other people don't have and they become bitter about it and they instead of focusing on how to make it happen for them instead of trying to understand why people have capital they focus on how we can take away the capital from the people who have it so that we would make life more fair and that is ridiculous. That is similar to thinking that your lack of health will be fixed by making healthy people unhealthy. That's not how it works. 
anyone can be healthy if they take care of themselves and anyone can accumulate capital if they set their mind to it and if they understand how it works then you can accumulate more and more capital and you can improve your life but if you don't understand how health works and if you don't understand how capital works and you fixate on the people who have those things rather than trying to get them for yourself you're going to have a bad time so Capital isn't just a gift from heaven. Capital is costly, and the cost is constantly paid by its owners. It's not just a cost that you pay once and then you get on with your life and now you have capital forever. Capital has to first be earned, but then it you have to constantly forego consumption of the resources that you are dedicating for capital, and then you have to deploy it successfully, and you need to keep maintaining it. And at any point in time where you stop foregoing consumption or you stop deploying your capital successfully, you stop having capital. Plus, there are other things that are that, that are always happening that can take away your capital. So it's an extremely risky and extremely expensive process. So what are the costs involved in having capital? The first one is delayed gratification. Capital is only possible by sacrificing certain present consumption for uncertain future resources. This is the most important one. In order to have capital, you have to give up on what is certain today in exchange for what is uncertain tomorrow. All the world's capital can be converted to consumption at any point in time. Every fishing rod and every trawler could be converted into consumer goods by their owner at any point in time. It's just like a worker has to forego ledger to work, a capital owner has to forego consumption. If you think there's no cost to capital, you will end up with no capital. There's always a cost. Anybody who is involved in capital uh, production has to give up on consumption in order to have capital to dedicate to the production process. The second cost of capital is the second risk of owning capital. The second problem with having capital is that it can be destroyed. Capital can be easily destroyed and ruined. You, it's, it's useful here to think of capital as being like a living organism. It's something that if you're a living organism, you need to be eating and you need to be excreting and you need to constantly be living within your environment according to this dynamic in order to survive. And if you stop eating, you die. And capital is like that. Capital is like a living organism that needs to be employed in production processes. And it needs to produce output and generate returns in order to be maintained. So capital isn't just something that remains as it is forever. It's not like we have a capital good and it's going to remain a productive capital good forever. In order for it to be a capital good, it needs to be employed in capital production. In order for it to be employed in capital production, it needs to be making outputs and it needs to be turning a profit to be able to generate enough revenue for its owners to maintain it and continue to produce out of it. So if you think there's no cost of capital, you will end up with no capital. You will be unable to maintain your capital. The third cost of capital is that capital is constantly depreciating. It's just the nature of capital that it is constantly declining in value and it's declining in productivity because it is constantly degrading. It takes continuous effort to maintain capital. Capital is not just a normal uh, thing that occurs in the world. In order to make tree branches into a fishing rod, 
you need to expend some effort in order to make it a fishing rod and then in order for it to stay a fishing rod you need to spend effort on maintaining it because it just gets degraded over time the use degrades it nature degrades it everything is constantly degrading it and then reducing the amount of productivity that you can get out of it so you have to delay consumption you have to risk destruction of the capital. The capital could get destroyed. And you have to suffer the degradation of the capital and depreciation of the capital at all times. All of these things are things that capital owners need to put up with in order for them to maintain their capital. And then, of course, number four is risk. There are countless risks that threaten capital. So an earthquake can happen and can destroy your capital. Natural disasters can destroy capital. Um, industrial accidents can destroy capital. Boats sink. Fishing rods can break. Um, but beyond that, there are economic disasters that can befall capital. You have a certain way of producing things, and then that way stops being economical. And then your capital becomes worthless because it's not useful for production. And it's not easy to be repurposed. It could lose its value significantly. Because of just somebody else finding a better, more productive way of uh, utilizing um, resources in order to produce whatever it is that you're trying to produce. So it can become obsolete. So this risk is always present with capital. It's always present with all productive assets. And all of these things are always being incurred by producers at any point in time and making it harder for them to turn a profit. So in order to become a capitalist, one needs to first produce something of value for which others can pay him. He then needs to abstain from using that payment to satisfy his own needs and instead deploy it into a business whose goal is to serve others by producing outputs which they subjectively value higher than the market price of the inputs into the production process. At any point in time, failure to provide customers with this value will result in a collapse in revenue and profitability, inevitably leading to bankruptcy and the loss of capital. The causes of such failures are endless. Laziness, disinterest, bad luck, better competitors, but the outcome is always the same. The loss of capital. So anybody who tells you capital ownership is easy obviously doesn't understand what it takes. And it's usually easy if you don't, everything is easy if you don't understand what is involved in it. So if you don't think capital is valuable and expensive, why do you think workers choose to work for capital owners? Why don't workers just work without capitalists? The answer is that capital is a responsibility, not a privilege. You, you're not just gifted capital and that makes you rich and then you just collect revenue from it. It's a responsibility. If you don't know how to use it properly, it will degrade and it will lose the amount of money that it that is invested in it. And you can only keep your capital by deploying it in the surfaces of others successfully. It's only capital if it can produce things that other people want and things that people will pay you for. If you're unable to produce things that other people want and pay you for, you're stuck with a pile of rust. That's what capital becomes when it's not used in the service of others. So this is a very powerful point that Mises makes, that capitalism, capital is a responsibility, not a privilege. Capital owners have to work hard in order to satisfy society, because if they don't, then all of their work goes to waste. And understanding capital like this is useful 
uh, and it is possible because of our treatment of economics as a field of studying human action we started this chapter this book by understanding economics as human action so when you think of capital as being the output of human action as the output of delaying gratification investing exploring entrepreneurial opportunities and trying to increase economic return then you understand what capital is and you understand what it takes other schools of economics don't think of economics as being about human action and so for them, it appears as if it is some divine, heavenly privilege afforded to some people at the expense of others. Victims of Keynesian, Marxist, and fiat pseudoscience economics waste their lives hating on capital and its owners instead of learning how to acquire it and keep it. Societies captured by these death cults destroy capital by ruining the incentive for owning it, and they try to replace capital with fiat credit with calamitous consequences. And that's... I think a huge, huge problem in the 20th century. And once you understand the misunderstanding of capital, you understand why so many economic disasters happen in the 20th century. Because people with power do not understand how capital works. They do not understand what it takes for capital to be capital. And therefore, they engage in activities that destroy capital they think anybody can have capital so if we just take the capital from the capitalists and uh, give it to the government then the government will take the products of capital and distribute them to everybody and everybody will be better off it does not work that way because <laughs> as we said all of these things are involved in making capital happen and so when people get capital without having foregone consumption you know, particularly when bureaucrats get capital without having foregone consumption, without having to understand the opportunity cost involved, without understanding the risk involved, without understanding the problems that can happen to capital, without understanding the need to keep it productive, it's no surprise that capital is destroyed in their hands and the, it, the, the capital stock of society declines and goes to zero. And what modern societies do is that they try to replace capital with fiat credit, and that results with calamitous of that results with in calamitous consequences. You try to replace capital with just credit, which is uh, 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 just debt rather than actual capital. You're not going to create more capital. You're just going to create more claims on capital, and that's something we'll discuss in detail in the latter chapters of the book. A very important point in understanding capital is the relationship between capital and time preference. We discussed time preference in chapter three when we were discussing time, and it's very important to understand it moving forward in this uh, chapter. Capital and time preference is a very important relationship because the cost of capital is the sacrifice of present goods in anticipation of future goods. So the price of capital has to be a reflection of time preference because your willingness to sacrifice present goods in anticipation of future goods is highly linked to your time preference because you're sacrificing the present for the sake of the future. The higher your time preference, the less likely you are to engage in that sacrifice of the present for the future. The lower your time preference, the more likely you are to engage in that. So what is it that drives somebody to invest? Well, the decision to invest is the balancing of the utility of present goods against future goods discounted for time preference and uncertainty. 
there's an uncertainty in any production process and you discount the future goods with the uncertainty because you might not have those future goods and also you have to discount the future goods for time preference since you prefer the present for the future you have to discount them by the time preference so if i'm considering giving up a hundred dollars today i'm giving up considering giving up consuming a hundred dollars today for investing them in a production process that's going to lead to an output next year i'm going to do that if the value of the output next year is going to be more valuable to me higher to me than the 100 dollars today so the 100 dollars, let's say are worth 100 dollars for me today but if i invest them in something I expect that the return is going to be $120. But there is a risk that there's, say, a 10% risk that uh, this return is going to be zero. So I discounted for that risk of uh, 10% of zero. So you could say that the expected return in this case is $108, since 10% chance that I get don't get the 120 the 10% chance I get zero. And now my time preference determines whether I would invest this. If my time preference is higher than 8%, meaning that I value the present more than uh, uh, 8%, sorry, I value the present at, yeah, at, eight, at more than 8% than the future, then $108 next year are not worth giving up $100 for me today. If my time preference is such that my discount rate is lower than 8%, meaning I value the future at less than 8% compared to today, then I would be willing to give that up. So the decision to invest is inextricably linked to time preference. And that's why the constraint on capital formation is time preference. The lower our time preference, the more we are able to engage in investment decisions. And that's why I like to say that time preference is the control knob of capital formation. The lower the time preference, the more capital is formed. The more likely you are to sacrifice present goods for future goods, and so that creates more capital. On the other hand, if your time preference is high, you discount the future heavily, so you're unlikely to sacrifice present consumption in order to acquire capital that would allow you to have more output in the future. So this is what Hans Hermann Hoppe calls the process of civilization. The lowering of time preference brings about and initiates the process of civilization. And we can think of it as being a virtuous cycle, wherein time preference declines, and that causes capital accumulation to increase. The more we ca accumulate capital, the lower the price of capital, the lower the interest rate, the more available and abundant capital is. Now, the more capital is abundant, the higher our productivity rises and the more we are able to produce. This then causes living standards to improve. And as our living standards improve, as our life becomes better, as we have an abundance of goods and an abundance of economic uh, output, we are able to lower our time preference Further, we become more secure, we become more able to provide goods for capital investment and to sacrifice present consumption because we are not sacrificing consumption that is essential for our survival because we have a surplus over our survival. So it's easier for you to save when you have a lot of money than when you have a little bit of money. 
That's the same idea. And so rising standards of living in turn lead to more decline in time preference, which leads to more capital accumulation. And that we can think of as the process of civilization. And this is effectively how human history has advanced. And we're going to be discussing this in more detail later on in the chapters of this book, how it advances and how it gets derailed. And what are the things that derail this process of civilization and how it can be brought back on track. Now, the discussion of savings and capital is full of fallacies. If you read your average Keynesian textbook, you are going to be inundated with fallacies when it comes to savings. Most modern economics textbooks emphasize trade rather than capital accumulation. When people think of capitalism, even though the term is all about capital, people think of capitalism as being a system of free trade. Most people understand capitalism in terms of free trade rather than in terms of capital accumulation. If you study in particular development organizations and development economics, they rarely mention savings as being an important thing for development. They think economic advancement happens through free trade and through whatever new buzzword is fancy these days in um, development economic circles, but not so much capital accumulation and savings. They rarely mention that. And when they do mention capital, it's not to promote saving and it's not to encourage saving on the contrary it's to encourage the diametrical opposite of saving which is borrowing so if you really want to think about it you could say that development economics and international development organizations are essentially marketing for debt slavery and borrowing from the imf and the world bank as i discuss in detail in the fiat standard which i highly recommend uh, obviously, it's my book, uh, but there's a Piazza Santa book, and there's also the course also available on my website. So if you're taking this course on my website, you can also take the Fiat Standard. It's also available there. Keynesians generally portray saving as if it is an antisocial thing. They present saving as if it is just something that is bad for society. And when you save money rather than spend it, then you are hurting society, which is just insane. Now, how did they arrive at this silly conclusion? Well, they start by assuming the society's income will be divided into saving and consumption according to a predetermined formula. No human agency, no action, no human action, just a preordained slip. There's a consumption formula, and it just says people will consume this amount, and they will save that amount. And according to that, that's how uh, everybody's going to act in aggregate. And uh, they also define investment as being the purchase of new capital, whereas saving is the buying of stocks, bonds, or bank accounts. And that's inaccurate. Saving is the deferral of consumption. It's when you don't consume things. It's when you don't spend resources on um, uh, consumption goods. And instead, you maintain the money. You hold on to the money. So if you put your money in a bank account, if you keep your money under the mattress, that's saving. Um, if you buy stocks, if you buy uh, capital, effectively, that's investment. You're putting your money in a productive enterprise. So that is a form of investment. And what the company that you buy a stock in does with that money is also a form of investment. They take the money and they buy capital with it. According to the Keynesian model, savings are equal to investment at equilibrium. When the economy is at equilibrium, we have savings equal to investment. If savings are too high then we end up in a situation where we're off of equilibrium and that results in unemployment and recession. And that's a bad thing. And so with this kind of idea, 
you get to the conclusion that saving is bad and saving is bad for the economy because they separate saving from investment. And so therefore, you are able to arrive at the conclusion that more saving is not going to necessarily lead to more investment. It can lead to us going out of equilibrium because the decision to invest is independent of the decision to save. The decision to invest is driven by interest rates. The decision to save is driven by the marginal propensity to consume. And so if those two things aren't matching, if our savings are higher than our investment, then we are saving too much. We're not spending enough. And so the investment is being wasted. And so we are going to get recessions and unemployment. And that's how they arrive at this conclusion that saving is bad. So savings cause lower spending, which results in the firing of workers and unemployment, resulting in more saving and less spending in a worsening spiral. And so how do we fix that? Like everything in Keynesian economics, it can be fixed by the government printing money and spending money, of course, because the entire thing is just an elaborate exercise in rationalizing government spending and government inflation. So only government can fix this by destroying your savings in order to finance its spending and consumption and borrowing for investment. And that is why savings as a concept are destroyed. This is how when you see when you look at um, uh, societies that follow Keynesian economics, you see that savings decline over time. People start saving less, people borrow more, savings rates decline and credit rates increase a lot and people live on debt as you see around the world today. So this is, I think, the consequence of understanding capital incorrectly and understanding it based on aggregate Keynesian analysis rather than basing on our understanding of economics on individualist human action, which is what we've done in this chapter. So finally, the final question we discuss in this chapter, which leads us to the next chapter, is are there limits to capital? Can we have enough capital? Are we going to get to a point where we have enough capital and saving more is just going to be a waste because we already have all the machines that we could possibly have. We have all the productive assets that we already have. My answer to that is no, because we always keep finding more productive ways of using capital because technology keeps advancing. More capital investment just allows us to devise more advanced ways of doing things. The limit on how much productivity we have is how much we're able to save. If we save more, we're going to have more capital, and then we can use that capital more efficiently, more productively, and we can devise more ways of um, producing things more productively. In other words, we come up with new technologies. And technology is, the, is a form of capital, and it is the topic of the next chapter. It's a form of capital that is different from other capital, capital in that it is non-physical. Technology is an idea. Technology is not a physical thing. It's not a scarce thing. And it is the way in which we organize physical capital. And the more physical capital we have, the more ideas and the more technologies we can come across. And that is what keeps economic growth happening. And that is what keeps making our world increase in prosperity. And that's what keeps capital production productive, no matter how much capital we accumulate. In other words, the only limits to uh, capital are our time preference and the opportunity cost of consumption. We're not going to get to a limit where we have too much capital. And we'll discuss this in more detail in the next lecture. Thank you very much for joining this one.